the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Good morning, my name is Mark. Um, we're going to open the Bible in a moment and read the passage that Simon's going to speak on. Before we do that, let's just bow our heads in prayer just for a, a couple of moments, just to kind of prepare our hearts for that. Father, thank you for the passage that we're going to read today, Lord. We just pray that you would open our hearts so that we would hear what you're saying through that passage this morning, Lord, and that we would also be receptive to what you're going to say through Simon as well. Amen. Okay. The reading this morning is from Luke chapter 19. And it starts at verse 28 through to verse 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied. If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. Hello, everybody. Hello. My name is Simon. I'm one of the leaders here at the church, and it's my joy to lead us through taking a look at Luke chapter 19 this morning. So if you could have that passage of the Bible open in front of you, we're going to be referring to it uh, often uh, this morning. Now you've heard already that we are a handful of days away from Good Friday. It's this Friday, in case you hadn't noticed. Uh, We are all invited to go to the cathedral at 10am, the churches together across Exeter uh, will be hosting a joint service. That's where I'm going to be at 10am on Friday. You are welcome to join. 
if uh, as an alternative you'd like to do something as a family together, we have some activity sheets out on the welcome desk. You could take those and do a good Friday reflection. But perhaps for all of us, let's have a think about what are you going to be doing on that Friday? How are you going to be recalling the events of Good Friday? Well, I wonder what kind of things come to mind. Here's some words for you. Hopefully they're familiar about the events of Good Friday. Betrayal, arrest, trial, desertion, mocking, beating, scourging, and the crucifixion of Jesus. It's easy to see the events of Holy Week and see Jesus solely as someone to whom things happen. It's easy to look at Holy Week and see Jesus solely as someone to whom things happen. He looks helpless. He looks powerless. He looks unwilling and unable. It's easy to look at Good Friday and simply see a tragic accident, an unfortunate incident, a brutal miscarriage of justice, the untimely death of an innocent man caught up in events and circumstances far beyond his own control. After all, he, Jesus, is betrayed. He is arrested. He's tried. He's deserted. He's mocked. He's beaten. He's scourged and he's crucified. There's another side to all this, though. And this morning in Luke chapter 19, we get to see inside the mind of the king. We get to see inside and glimpse some of the purpose and the intent of this king as he journeys towards Jerusalem. Luke is our writer this morning. He's an investigative journalist. He's a historian. He wants to make sure everything's neat and tidy and in a line. He's carefully researched, recorded, archived and wrote these things to make something very, very clear. This is the end of a long, long journey. The events of Holy Week are the culmination of a great journey led by King Jesus. The events of Good Friday and Holy Week, they find their origin in, their purpose, in the step-by-step purposeful stride of King Jesus towards Jerusalem. He knows what he's doing and he knows where he's going. And he's going there for you and for me. We read this in the middle of Luke when he starts out on this great journey. When the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's resolute and determined. He says, also, in any case, I must press on. Today and tomorrow and the next day for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem. He's on his way. He's determined. That's what he wants to do. It's his plan, his idea. He's on the way. And then he takes his disciples aside and says, we're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that's written about the prophets, about the Son of Man, will be fulfilled. He knows what he's doing. He knows where he's going. Jesus is the king who's out in front. And take a look down at our passage, the first verse of it, verse 28, and you find him out in front again. 
Verse 28, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, he's out in front, and he goes up to Jerusalem. Having read this verse, what kind of thing should we ask ourselves? After Jesus had said this, verse 28, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. What should we ask ourselves? What did Jesus just say? Well, he's been telling a parable. They're these succinct stories, these really concise stories that tell and display the character of Jesus. And he's just been telling one about a king. A certain noble man goes to a distant country in order to be installed or enthroned as king. Verse 12 of Luke 19. But guess what? His subjects hated him. And they sent a delegation after him to say, verse 14, we don't want this man to be our king. The king returns from this distant country and he brings praise and gifts to those who've been faithful in just a little and judgment for those who've rejected him. Jesus has been telling a parable about a king who's enthroned, verse 12, rejected, verse 14, and who brings judgment, verse 27. And the enthronement, rejection, and judgment of the king are themes that we see in our passage this morning. Jesus is embodying the parable that he's just told. Now, If you know anything about Holy Week, you'll know that the theme of king appears again and again and again. Have a think to yourself. Where do you see Jesus as king in the story of Easter? Is it this royal procession into Jerusalem? Is it Pilate's questioning of Jesus? Are you the king of the Jews? Is it the twisted crown of thorns placed upon Jesus' head? Or perhaps that simple sign that hangs above him. This is the king of the Jews. Jesus is demonstrating in all of this that he is king. It's a really really simple point this morning. You might have got it already. Uh, Jesus is king. And today I'd like us to look at two sides of his kingship. These two scenes from verse 28 to 40. And verse 41 to 44, there is no one like this king. And we get to see two different angles of him. We see the humble king in verses 28 to 40. And then a a very different side, the tearful judge in verses 41 to 44. So that's what we're going to be taking a look at in the bulk of our time together this morning. The humble king and the tearful judge. We have a simple structure of these two scenes. One is a bit like how we've been this morning. Loud, joyful, full of praise. Gemma read for us at the start of the service a prophecy from Zechariah. It says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Everyone was loudly praising Jesus as he moves towards Jerusalem, sat upon this donkey. It's loud, it's joyous, it's full of praise. But then there's another scene, and it couldn't be more different. I wonder whether you spotted it. 
There's a hushed silence. All of the praise stops. All of the loud, joyous praise of Jesus stops. And there's a hushed silence from the crowd as we look upon Jesus, who's visibly changed. He's burdened. He's distressed. He's weeping. I wonder whether you've, you've ever seen someone who, who you respect, who you trust, who you follow, and you've just seen them completely change. Their demeanour, their outlook, just crumble. That's what happens in this second scene. Jesus is in tears as he glimpses Jerusalem on his way to the cross. It's a scene of silence, hushed silence, as Jesus weeps and then utters this lament over a city and a people who are going to reject him. Well, let's take a look at that first one there, the humble king. The passage Mark has just read for us, it gives us an account of the last one or two miles of Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem. There are a couple of key locations, Bethage, Bethany, and the Mount of Olives in verse 29. And I'll mention those in a few moments' time. But back in November 2015, I was at a computational fluid dynamics conference. (laughs) I know, it really is as dull as it sounds. Uh, In Tel Aviv, of all places. It was so dull. It was so, so dull. I'd made it through to uh, day two of four days of lectures and presentations. I'd done my bit, I think I was on day one. And I considered by the end of day two, I'd actually done pretty well to make it this far. Um, at some point during day two of the lectures, I must have, it must have just occurred to me that life is too short to spend in a conference venue in, in Tel Aviv listening to stuff about computational fluid dynamics. So I went rogue and I booked myself on a tour of Bethlehem and Jerusalem. Uh, to prove it to you, Here's an absolutely dreadful selfie. Uh, of myself at the Wailing War. Um, I don't know whether this predates selfies being a thing or not, but uh, you'll be relieved to know and unsurprised to note that I don't do Instagram. My guide uh, took me to Jerusalem and we were on a bus. Uh, we entered the old city from the east. And as we did so, our guide asked us to turn around, face away from the city. And as we did so, our guide asked us to to just look up and look at that view, that hill in the distance. This is the Mount of Olives. This is where it all happened. And beyond it, over the brow of that hill, the locations of Bethany and Bethage. The Mount of Olives features heavily in the events of Holy Week. It's the route, which we have today, of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. It's where Jesus will come to pray, what we might know as Gethsemane. It's also, when you think about what's Jesus up to in this week called Holy Week, it's where he spends the night. During the day, he taught in the temple courts. He was an amazing teacher. People hung on his every word, verse 48. But he'd spend the nights out on the Mount of Olives, Luke chapter 21, verse 37. So I wonder if it helps you there just to visualise 
where Jesus is as he's making his way down towards Jerusalem. We are talking about real stuff that really happen. And it's clear from all that we've read that Jesus is the initiator and the orchestrator and the choreographer of his entry into Jerusalem. This has been planned. It's been planned for a while. He probably even has his mates in on it too, from Bethany and Bethage, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Simon the leper. All of these people are probably involved in this staged entry into Jerusalem involving this cult. Now, if you're a preacher and you're really in need of help to work out what a Bible passage is about, you often look for repetition. Luke gives us cult repeated four times, verse 30, verse 33, verse 33, and verse 35, to make sure that I don't miss what we're talking about. Luke is clear. Jesus is riding this cult, this donkey, into Jerusalem, and it has clearly some significance. It has significance because it is this direct fulfillment of a prophecy from Zechariah, which Gemma read for us at the start of the service. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. See your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the donkey. Jesus is clearly identifying himself as this humble, lowly, king who is coming into Jerusalem and he does this down to the very specific prophecy of his riding a cult into Jerusalem and his aim to bring peace to bring peace to the nations his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth but this isn't just a display of humility Jesus is demonstrating to everyone, to you, to me, to those onlookers, that he's king. And he's not simply a king, he's the king, the king of all. Do you notice people's different reactions to Jesus on the donkey? The disciples, the crowd, they praise and they bless. Verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're speaking of Jesus as not just an earthly king with a territory, but someone whose kingdom knows no limits. There are no limits to this humble king's kingdom. It goes right from peace in heaven and glory in the highest all the way down to, and did you spot this? Verse 40, the day-to-day stones beneath your feet, the chair you're sitting on. His kingdom extends from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. He is the king, not just a king, the king. He's claiming to be king of all, from the spiritual heights of heaven to the earthly realities of rocks and stones. That humble king is also the tearful judge. And we read that in verses 41 to 44. You may be familiar, or in fact more familiar, with the Garden of Gethsemane. Here Jesus is uh, visibly uh, distressed and he's carrying a personal burden. It's about his own relationship with God. This instance of Jesus weeping and being distressed, he's carrying a different burden. 
He's carrying the burden of you and I, of his people. And in particular, he's carrying the burden of those who are going to reject him in just a few days' time. He's visibly distressed, weak, and he's broken. There's something similar at play here. This burden isn't simply this of an individual, but of a ruler, a leader, someone carrying a heavy weight upon their shoulders. The praise stops And everybody's noticed that Jesus is weeping. He's carrying the burden of the people, the city, the multitudes, whose own rejection of God will lead to their downfall. If you've ever wondered what might be on Jesus' heart and mind as he looks down, as he travels down the Mount of Olives towards Jerusalem, you get a glimpse of it here. It's easy, isn't it, in an impersonal sense, in theory, to make light of the realities and the judgment of God. Yet this isn't theory. It's personal and it's clearly uh, a huge burden on the shoulders of Jesus. Let me read the verses from verse 41 to 44. They are quite startling. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. I believe that Jesus is for us now, today, still that humble king. And still that tearful judge. He asks us uh, through tears to recognize his coming. He asks us through tears to recognize God's coming to you. Let's make sure we do that this Easter. A quote from a commentary that I found helpful just to conclude. Jesus sees his reign not as nationalistic, but as universal. His mission, not only proclaiming release to the captives, but recovery of sight to the blind and good news to the poor. His crown is a crown of thorns, his throne a splintery cross. His exaltation does not come in riding a horse-drawn chariot amid the cheers of family and friends. Rather, he finds his glory in being raised up on a cross amid the jeers of the masses. Through his death and resurrection, the one who refuses to be an earthly king makes his own royal entry by the way of a cross and an empty tomb.